Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco. This week, we speak of culinary legend Madhur Jaffrey. I'm actually an actress and I know how to convey the love of food, not only by my actions, but the way I present it. Plus, we explore Monaco's Small Cities Index. This is what small cities can offer. They can offer a certain focus that perhaps in the noise of a big metropolis gets lost. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start with a highlight from our news show, The Briefing. It's Francesca Albanese. She is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. She joined our host, Vincent McVinney, with the latest. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is... Uh continues to be catastrophic and there is no way it will improve in the coming days. Um, there have been uh, nearly or over 15,000 people killed. Uh, 6,000 of them are children. There are 3,000 people still under the rubble and 50% of the civilian infrastructure has been either destroyed or severely damaged, so it's no longer functional um, after uh, four or five weeks of continuous relentless bombing. And uh, entire residential neighborhoods have been leveled together with churches, mosques, schools, hospitals. The fact that uh, uh, the major hospitals, uh, particularly Al-Shifa, has stopped functioning is uh, is part of the catastrophe that risks to um, amplify the, the, the humanitarian the humanitarian problems in the coming days is because um, there are already uh, respiratory issues and other um, infections and forms of disease uh, that are traveling across the, the population. You know, there is 1.7 million people who have been forcibly displaced, uh, sleeping either in uh, shelters or in the street with minimum hygiene possible, no food, no drinkable water for most of the people. This is, yeah, this is why catastrophe is a word that well describes what's going on right now. And in the six days of the truce, has there been much that NGOs and charities have been able to do to help alleviate some uh, of that dire situation? Well, first of all, I would like to commend the humanitarian personnel on the ground and particularly particularly ANRWA, because ANRWA, uh, which is the largest uh, UN organization on the ground, has done an incredible, incredible job in uh, trying to, uh, as usual, as usual, because this is the sixth war that ANRWA, together with the Palestinians in Gaza, go through since 2008. And it has sheltered uh, in IDPs and it has tried to uh, provide all possible humanitarian aid, but at a certain point had to call the, uh, I mean, uh, had to, to, to cease because it was uh, just uh, running out of, out of fuel. And then it's still the, the main actor pro- trying to access uh, people in uh, remote areas together with ICRC in the north. Um, and it has lost uh, 100, over 100 staff 
members, which is which is incredible. I mean, it's 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 horrible. Mm. And uh, and still, Anwa is the main actor distributing distributing aid, but it also says that whatever has entered, uh, uh, which has increased actually during the during the siege, uh, sorry, during the ceasefire. But it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to meet all the needs of the population, but particularly because there are also over 30,000 people who are wounded, who need medical assistance, and there is nothing to uh, to help them. And just to say for listeners who aren't aware of the term, IDP means internally displaced person. Um Francesca, can I just ask, with the fighting set to resume at the moment, uh, within the next 24 hours, and particularly given the claims Israel is set to push towards the south of the Gaza Strip, where they had told Palestinians to move for safety, what are your fears about the coming days? No, I truly hope. I truly hope that uh, that the, oper- the military operations will not resume because it does look. It's already a catastrophe, as I said. I mean, 16,000 people in in less than 50 days. It's it's an horrendous figure. It's clear. Israel, Israel claims to have killed one thousand around one thousand one thousand five hundred Hamas operatives. It means that ninety percent ninety percent of the victims are innocent, are civilians who had nothing to do with it. Isn't it enough to show that Israel is not in, in able is not able to respect the principles of distinction, proportionality, and precaution that are cardinal to in in, in uh, at times of conflict? So there is no way, no way that the bombing can resume without amplifying, aggravating the the already dire situation. If we looked even further ahead, say, to the sort of end of this, uh, the combat operations that Israel is undertaking, say, um, with the damage that's been done to infrastructure, you mentioned the hospitals, but also, you know, so much of the infrastructure, the sort of water, uh, electricity, everything else. I mean, what would be needed for Palestinians to continue just being able to live in Gaza? Yeah. Look, I think it's based on what comes out uh, from those who are on the ground. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of long-term humanitarian senior UN officials who have been in other conflict zones and 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 areas of of disasters. They say they have never seen this level of destruction. And uh, all of them seems to infer that it will be impossible to resume uh, life, uh, even if the hostilities ceased forever. It will take a while to rebuild Gaza. So um, in, in this respect, I want to say that, I mean, just connected to how you started your, your last question, I think that the long-term uh, goal has not been just uh, the eradication of Hamas from uh, Israel's hands, has been uh, inflicting um, a huge strike on the civilian population, which frankly, it's um, it's unacceptable, but this is the reality we we are facing now, and surely the, the Palestinians in Gaza are facing. And for the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, we head to Ukraine. Though Ukraine's next presidential election is scheduled to be held on the 31st of March 2024, Russia's invasion of the country has created many issues that will prevent it from being truly free and fair. Andrew Muller explains why some people think that Ukraine should hold it anyway. (laughs) 
Next year is shaping up as quite the bumper calendar for cephalogy enthusiasts. Opportunities for staying up all night to watch election coverage with a few friends. Should the kind of people who stay up all night to watch election coverage have a few friends, will be presented by, among others, the United States, the European Union, India, South Africa, Taiwan, Bangladesh, Mexico, South Korea, Romania, and probably the United Kingdom, unless the looming Anglo-Greek War of 2024 ends with the Hellenic Navy sailing up the Thames to reclaim their Parthenon marbles and deciding they might as well take charge of the place entirely. Frankly, we could do worse, and indeed have been. Anyway, despite the looming promise of a veritable choir of Vox Populi, one 2024 election which is presently attracting a goodly deal of attention is one which will almost certainly not be occurring. In happier circumstances, March 31st would see President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine seeking re-election. For obvious reasons, this is not presently scheduled to occur. Ukraine has been under martial law since Russia launched its absurd assault on the country in February 2022. Under the provisions thereof, the usual democratic niceties are suspended. Ukraine was, for example, supposed to have had parliamentary elections in October. It did not. This is obviously not ideal, but nor is anything about Ukraine's present predicament. The arguments against attempting to hold a presidential election during wartime are obvious enough. The incumbent has more pressing concerns than shaking hands and kissing babies. Polling stations, queues of voters, headquarters of election officials, candidates themselves would all be tempting targets for Russian missileers and drone operators. The election itself would be plagued by Russia's online hackers and wreckers. And though some Ukrainians who fled in the early stages of the invasion have returned home, several million have not, and many more are displaced within Ukraine, and that's not counting those hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians presently serving on the front lines. Martial law, renewed every 90 days, would need to be lifted. Added to which, the difficulties of extending the franchise to the oblasts of Ukraine currently occupied by Russia would be brandished by the Kremlin as evidence that those regions are not properly Ukrainian. So there. Polling suggests that actual Ukrainians can see all this pretty clearly. By one recent count, upwards of 80% favour suspending elections until the war is over. And at any rate, there appears to be little in the way of perceptible discontent with President Zelensky. Nevertheless, there is a considerable, at least voluble, cohort insisting that Ukraine must, despite all of the above, hold its presidential election on time. These people are almost exclusively American and, by and large, were one to espy any of their rockers, one would notice that they were not on them. Why are you against supporting Ukraine? Because it does not advance American interests. And as the U.S. president, I'm not running for any other role other than looking after the interests of America. Thank you, Mr. Chair. My amendment would prohibit funds from being provided to assist Ukraine. The Yahoo wing of the U.S. Republican Party is determined to make aid to Ukraine an issue in next year's American elections. 
All this will do is fuel another never-ending war and push the United States even closer to the brink of nuclear holocaust. And a big hello to everyone else, old enough to recall when the US Republican Party was absolutely the most reliable bastion of support for any peoples oppressed by Moscow. You mark my words, the way this war ends right now without the US actually stepping in and saying we're not going to fund any more of it is going to be some post-Zelensky warlord takes over with a couple hundred billion dollars of American military equipment, just like what happened after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and you see how far that got. The reasons for these Republicans being against the United States' current arming and funding of Ukraine are a combination of the Democrats being for it and the in no way suspicious fondness for Vladimir Putin's Russia, which has infected the GOP in recent years. One means of justifying their indifference to a theoretical ally is bleating that because Ukraine has suspended elections while it engages in an existential struggle, Ukraine is unworthy of America's largesse. Inevitably, the Venn diagram of people criticising Ukraine for not holding a presidential election and people who attempted to overturn the most recent one held by the United States is pretty much a circle. They are, of course, taking their lead from presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, who has been advocating a slashing of assistance to Ukraine. They are further encouraged by polls suggesting, very likely as a consequence of Trump's bloviating on the subject, that nearly half of Americans now believe their country is spending too much on Ukraine. Before I even arrive at the Oval Office, I will have the disastrous war between Russia and Ukraine settled. It will be settled quickly. I will get the problem solved and I will get it solved in rapid order and it will take me no longer than one day. I know exactly what to say to each of them. I got along with very well with it. These same polls do not ask how many respondents could point to Ukraine on a globe. In fairness, not every argument for Ukraine holding its presidential election on time is bad faith grandstanding by quacking nitwits. First, foremost, and most honkingly, obviously, elections should, in general, be held. It would also be a heroic demonstration of Ukraine's democratic credentials, especially when contrasted with the wretched sham Russia is going to conduct at almost exactly the same time, by which President Vladimir Putin will be re-elected yet again by whatever margin he chooses. When the result was announced, it was clear. Russia's parliament will remain Putin's parliament. United Russia, the party backed by Vladimir Putin, had won followed by three other parties which support him. President Zelensky had long equivocated about the prospects of holding an election in March. As recently as August, he seemed to suggest it might be possible if Ukraine's parliament agreed and if Ukraine's allies stumped up sufficient financial support. He said reasonably that Ukraine wouldn't spend money on polling booths, it could be spending on weapons. He has more recently acknowledged that it is all pretty unlikely. My personal attitude and call is to take care of our country just as on February the 24th, to defend it, to destroy the occupier, to fight for the freedom of Ukraine. It might nevertheless have been tempting, if only to silence Ukraine's American populist critics. However, Zelensky has doubtless understood by now that nothing, regrettably, is likely to do that. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullet. 
You are listening to The Curator. And now to Monaco's latest annual look ahead, The Forecast, which is on the newsstands now. And inside, we presented our fifth Small Cities Index, exploring centers with fewer inhabitants, but plenty still to give in terms of their urban offerings. To discuss the big winners and find out what got into the top, Monaco's Andrew Tuck was joined by the editor of the Index, our design editor Nick Muniz. Andrew began by asking Nick, why do we like small cities so much? Andrew, we like small cities for a host of different reasons. And it is funny, it's, it has evolved over the last couple of years. I've now been running it for two. I think this is our fifth edition. But if we actually compare 2023 to 2024, 2023 was really about self-sufficiency and cities that you could go to and if the world did you know, implode, which it felt like it was a little bit at the time, you would have access to all the resources you need. And we're talking about you know close proximity to farm and fresh produce, but also proximity to an airport where you could escape if you need to, connectivity to other cities a fast internet connection. In, in 2023, those felt like things that were essential. In 2024, I, I think our perspective maybe has become less about self-reliance or, or resiliency. Not to say that that's not important, but I think the focus has shifted much more to lifestyle. So what we've looked at in 2024 in this latest iteration of, of the index is places where you might want to set up to nurture a particular skill set. And I think this is, or a particular way of life. And I think this is what small cities can offer. They can offer a certain focus that perhaps in the noise of a big metropolis gets lost. If we can start to come through some of them. But if we start with Naha, which we, it is a loose ranking, but we started with Naha in Japan just because we felt that as we head into, into winter and the gloomier months in the Northern Hemisphere, the appetite or the desire to go and, and live an island life might be there. And, and, and this was a place we felt really strongly, and considering a host of options across the globe, we felt really strongly would be a place to go set up if you wanted to be on an island and yet not far from other metropolises. Well, someone we, I think, know quite well, Mr. Brule, ended up going to Naha in recent days and I think was blown away by the place. The arrivals from big cities who have gone there to set up stores, to make restaurants, the connection with craft and food production there make it an incredibly special place. I want to ask you what makes in population numbers a small city because I did have to kind of stop you a few times because you were trying to get a few in there that I, I think were quite big cities. So, so how, cause It's funny, when you think about often the city you think of as very small, you then realise it has this wide metropolitan area that kind of cracks it up to a million people without you realising. So what is a small city for Nick Manise? So we've capped it at 350,000, which is personally a little bit too small for me. I mean, I'm from a city of 2 million and that felt tiny, Perth on, on the west coast of Australia. But you're right in saying that often when we think of a city, we think of it as, you know, I guess the county or the local government boundary, however we mark these areas up on a map. But we've sort of gone for 350,000 as the metropolitan area. And, and that in itself presents a challenge, particularly with so often we see cities sprawling into their neighbouring cities and Twin Cities just become a, an enormous metropolis. But we really capped it at 350,000. And there were some challenges in this. I mean, Brazil, we visited Petropolis as part of the index. And, you know, we were talking to Fernando, our culture correspondent, our senior culture correspondent here, who is Brazilian, and trying to, I guess, find a Brazilian city or a Latin American city that fit that brief was particularly challenging. Because so often it's, you know, even if you look at Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, there are, I guess, separate cities around it, but really lots of them are just an extension of the metropolitan area and the sprawl. So finding a, a good city that stands on its own was particularly challenging in that instance. 
Now, I know you like to stay friends with the High Commissioner here in London, but you, being a good Aussie, you, you snuck in Newcastle, Australia. I don't know anything about Newcastle, Australia. Sorry, listeners in Newcastle, Australia. Tell me about Newcastle, Australia. Why is it so good? I mean, it, it's a brilliant city for several reasons. It fits the 350,000 <laughs> 50, uh, population uh, cap, which is essential. But I actually, I mean, obviously, I'm always going to try and work Australia in there. But, you know, I ran through a, a host of different candidates for this city. I looked at, for an Australian city that might fit the bill, I looked at Wollongong, which is an hour or two south of Sydney, whereas Newcastle's an hour or two north. Wollongong felt like really a suburb, an extension of Sydney. It didn't feel like it had its own defined cultural life. We've got editors and reporters on the ground there and talking to them about their perceptions of the cities and how they, whether they feel like their own standalone thing was a big factor in this. So Newcastle has its own strong and established culture scene. It's got its own furniture and and maker industry. There are architects there that are well established and not just an extension of, of the Sydney practices. And I think that was really, really distinct. Add to that, the city itself, you've got quick access to beaches, amazing coffee, as you would expect in Australia, and really a a business-friendly environment as well. And I think that's also something that's important as well. We're looking at these in terms of lifestyle factors, but coming into that is all of these cities are assessed on whether their local economies are friendly to business. We make note of that. We're looking at whether it's a place you could easily go and, and set up shop, not just is it pretty and is it somewhere where I'd like to lay on the beach. Now, you're also a design architecture editor, and you've got in here Eindhoven, which is famous for its design school. But for if you were going to be asked to go and live in one of these small cities as a, a design aficionado, where might you go? This was a fascinating one, and I think I probably wouldn't have picked this initially setting out, but Santander Spain really sort of put itself on my radar in terms of not only the, the brilliant architects that are commissioned there. I mean, there's works by Renzo Piano and David Chipperfield in the city itself, but actually more works coming online from David Chipperfield. And it's the fact that you've got these big architects practicing there that appeals to me. In terms of if you're a designer or you're an architect, these huge studios are always looking to partner with a local firm. So this could be a great chance to potentially get on the radar of these big names. So I think not only for its established architecture and its established design scene, but also for potential to, I guess, further, I think Santander really puts itself forward as a strong candidate for design. And you should pick up a copy of the forecast because the index is in there. And I must say that the pictures of Santander make it look particularly appealing. We had Girona last year and now we have Santander. I could happily go and spend a little bit of time in either of them. Unfortunately, we, we can't get your beloved Mallorca or Parma rather on too there. It's big. slightly too, too big. big. But there's certainly some other Spanish candidates for you that maybe, you know, if you need a little break from Parma, you can jet off there for the weekend. Next, we're off to Berlin, where we meet Peruvian-German artist and DJ Sofia Cortizis to talk about her just-released debut album, Madres, laced into the sophisticated beats, euphoric synths and field recordings that shape the 10-track work is the message of what it means to fight for love and win. Cortizis met with Confacts Paige Reynolds at Berlin's former GDR broadcaster turned cultural venue, Funkhaus, to talk about her sonic journey so far and the emotional events that define her most recent work. When I was a child, my father was like an active lawyer, but he was also like in a rock band. So he had like a lot of instruments at home, and I really liked the melodies. I grew up playing keyboards, I like being very playful. But when I came to Germany, like... Everything was changing. I think I was trying to find the kind of music that I very love, but I, I kind of like 
I really like the solely vibes that you can find on hip-hop tracks. So when I started to do music, I started as a rapper, actually, but it, I was very bad. The way of producing music for hip-hop tunes is like a lot of sampling from the things that you see. And I love the art of like recording on your MPC and like doing like a live recording, like just from like jamming, you know, like it could be a jazz session. But at that time I was living in Hamburg, but when I moved to Berlin, I really fell in love with the electronic music scene. At that time, like we were like, I'm talking already about 10 years ago, where you had like all these big raids and like on the backyards of like flats and houses and where like the situation was not really like with so many investors coming. I was very lucky to have a little bit of the end of the Berlin era of liberty and all this like new wave techno trans electronic scene so I was really uh, captivated by it there was like a time where I took like this as a school like every time I was going to trees or like out to panorama bar to listen to electronic music and I really got into like all this Detroit house and I thought like maybe this is a kind of sound that I can combine like with samplings that I do I always find it very important to like sample the places where I go, the people that I met, and the things that I do. I always said like my heart is Peruvian, but my brain is like very Germanized. Seven years ago, I started to find my voice, to start also like to communicate and tell the story that really like matters to me. When I first did my release in Studio Bahnhof, it was like really like this new sound that I had, like a combination of Berlin and South America that is my roots. So I sent it to him and he said like they loved it. At the beginning, like when I started to make electronic music, I let the machines talk. But now I feel like like I'm working with the machines and I'm talking more. So it's like a I don't let the machines now talk for me. Now I'm the one talking. You know, when you are evolving all the time, and I think that the human nature is like always to keep like having different faces in your life till you find the most comfortable way and the most truly you where you don't have to act or pretend something that you are not. And I think like as you get older, you are more comfortable like you, you know what you're saying, you know, you're not like lost in experience, you have to experience now. I believe in a higher power and it's like so crazy what happened because I really thought that I would lose her like at that moment and it's like and it's like after losing your father to like this kind of horrible cancer and then you try to breathe and then something like this comes your mother and it's like like even to bring this album is really scary for me because always when I release new music something happens that's why it was so crazy that I met this person because without the neurosurgeon my mom would not be alive right now and we were going through bad times to good times but when there was good times there were the most beautiful times and that's like um, and she's like such a force for me because like I really like depend on her like what she thinks how she sees that 
she had a very hard life, but she had also like a very beautiful life because it's like, and I, I just want to honor her because like it's all about the force and the love that she gives really touches miracles. And I think it's like even like fathers are mothers or like friends that become your mother or like aunties or like just like a person. It's like the beauty of this love, this unconditional This love that you cannot find anywhere, that is like a force for you, you know? When you have like advanced lung cancer, it metastasizes. So sometimes they give you three months, but now she's living two years with it. And I'm very lucky that we have the time now to be with her and give everything she wants. Like she's like my queen. So first, it was a miracle that I got an appointment with him. Second, it was a miracle that he would even operate on her because everybody was against it. Just one millimeter going wrong and she's not, never going to walk or talk or everything. All this was so surreal. And sometimes I think that this man is a UFO. And seriously, I'm not a spiritual person. Like I grew up in Germany, so I'm very rational as well, you know, like, but now I really think about souls maybe find each other before or like you know and i think this person is not from this world every day i wake up and say like i'm say thank you to all the beautiful things that happened to me and like also try to do like like be also more there for other people because i'm so thankful for the people that are there for me so i'm trying to give back even a little bit It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to give back when you get back. When when I found finally my voice five years ago, this place really grounded me to be able to write the melodies and and, and, and to be in, in a completely other world where I can like it's like a the door of like Peru and Germany. I always said like I'm a frustrated filmmaker. So Funkhaus is like a it's like a time machine where you open the door and it's like all these ideas, all the impression, but you don't know where exactly you are because every door is a different room. So it's a kind of like this is for me Funkhaus is like my friends, the warmness and like escaping from the real world in order to be able to write about your own world. I don't see it as, as one place in Germany, I see it as their own world, Funkhaus. It doesn't have like a continent, it's like the world of like the time machine capsule where you come and create beautiful things. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And, as you know, France was the big winner of Monaco's soft power survey. To celebrate, I've prepared a very special global countdown. Let's have a listen.
Our music curator and senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is with us now in the studio once again for his global countdown, which today is soft power themed, Fernando. Absolutely. Uh, to celebrate France's victory in our soft power survey in the new issue, which is out today, by the way, uh, of course, France won. And you know what, Vini? I mean, for listeners of Monaco Radio, they know we, we play a lot of French music. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit my fault as well when I choose the songs for the radio. <laughs> I think the French has such an incredible music history mm. and new artists all the time. It's a great country for music. And in part, those rules that help protect their music industry as well, the number of French songs that have to be played versus English songs. Absolutely. Uh, it's a very talented country. So today's Global Countdown is a little bit of a special. It's not the current top five in the French charts, but it's a little look back of the artists with the most number ones uh, historically in the French charts. There might be a few surprises here and there, uh, but you know, I think you might like it actually. Okay. And we're kicking off with a French artist themselves. So here is our first track in it. Number Number five. Number five is the great Daft Punk with One More Time. I mean, Daft Punk is incredibly influential worldwide, I would say. Their use of autotune, the French touch, uh, as they call French house music. And this song was number one, I mean, globally. It's a fantastic track. Uh, I love it. Shall we play a little clip mm-hmm. of it? And if I may say, I think this is one of the best pop songs of all time. Wow, okay. Yes. Big, big. Well, I mean, they've got quite a lot of epic songs to pick from, haven't they? Uh, But number four on your list, I was really taken back by because I did not expect this artist to have been so big in France. It is. She's huge in France. And I think the thing is, Shakira, she's a global superstar, right? I mean, she sings in in French, actually, in the song that we're going to hear in a minute. She sings in Portuguese, Spanish, of course, her mother language. In English, of course, most famously. She had five number ones in France. She was tied with a comedian called Michael Jung, but we're not playing him today. I had to make a few choices here. I'm so sorry. Uh, so this track that we're going to hear, that was a huge number one in France. And in, in fact, that song was live from her concert in Paris because she released an album from that tour mm-hmm. uh, that she did in Paris. The song is a cover. Uh, it's called J'ai Am Mourir by Shakira. Shall we have a listen? Yep. Elle a battu des points contre nous et le ciel Elle nous laisse traversons chaque fois qu'elle ne veut pas dormir Elle veut pas dormir, je l'aime à mourir Elle a dû faire toute la guerre Pour être si forte aujourd'hui Elle a dû faire well, the tone of her voice really works with beautiful, French, Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And, and I have to say, Shakira's French is much better than mine, I have to say. <laughs> uh, well, I think her best track is Underneath Your Clothes. I think that is a banger from her first al- English album, at least. I think she's underrated. People forget, yeah. actually, how Shakira is such a fantastic force. I grew up in Brazil in the early, well, in the 90s, the mid-90s. She was so huge there. She was singing songs in Portuguese. She was mm. a bit kind of rockier uh, at that time. And now she's this, this kind of pop diva. She can do beautiful ballads, as, yeah. as we've just heard there Done as well. Done some great collabs with the likes of Beyonce as well. Exactly. 
Who's in at number three? Number three, I love this song. I mean, they're huge in France. The band is called Indochine. They're a pop rock uh, group. They had six number ones in France. Uh, and they are tied. I have, to, I have to be honest here. You might be sad to hear this because tied with Céline Dion. Sorry, Céline. Oh. One day I'll do a Céline special. I prom- I'm promising here on air. Lady Gaga and Rihanna. But I think Indochine has the best story because they are uh, French indeed. And this song is from 2002. They, they were popular since the 80s but then they were they kind of disappeared but with this track they were back and the french press loved it very mournful track i have to say this is indochina number three with je demande à la lune It's incredibly depressing track, I have to warn you. <laughs> he, I mean, he does say, I don't have much to tell you and not much to make you laugh. But there was a massive summer hit in France at the same time. <laughs> massive summer hit, a but bleak summer. It's bleak, poetic, but beautiful. But okay. beautiful. Okay. And uh, in at number two? Perhaps something a little bit sexier. But first of all, I mean, it's Johnny Holiday at number two. I mean, he's got nine number ones. And, you know... He brought rock and roll to France. This guy is a big deal. Mm. He's like their Elvis, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And to be honest with you, Vinny, he he could have been a number one. Because the numbers I'm looking here is the official number since 1984. Of course, his career, you know, started much before that. Mm. So he could have been number one, depending on which numbers you use. But Johnny Halliday, fantastic voice, fantastic uh, performance. I mean, when he died in 2017, I mean, it was a national mourning in France. It was like perhaps like Lady died uh, dying here in the United Kingdom. Uh, and this song's quite sexy. He, he wants to kind of, he's promising a lot of stuff to his potential affair. Uh, let's have a listen. It's Johnny Holiday. Je te promets. Classic ballad rock chords, isn't it? Classic, and he's promising a moment of fever and sweetness to his lover. Mm. Okay, and the big number one for our number one on the soft power list. Oh my god, I mean, I'm a massive fan of, of our next. In fact, I mean, she was born in Canada, but let's be honest, she's French. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, it's Mylène Farmer. I mean, she is the French queen of pop. And there's so many interesting aspects of her career because she's a cult figure. She's mysterious. She doesn't give interviews. She doesn't have a website. She's not a social media. But a bit the like fans. A Kate Bush figure. Very much so, but. Very, very good comparison. But the interesting thing is she's at the top of the charts. I mean, she goes on stadium tours in France and it's always sold out. So she's a big deal. So it's quite unusual to have like the biggest pop star in a country, but someone who is quite private. Some people said that she had two pet monkeys, which might be true or might be not. Some people say that she eats spiders. Might be true, might be not. We don't know. We don't know. She is mysterious. She's like the Regina George of French music. Everyone's got theories. Okay. But she had 21 number ones in France. And counting, let's be honest. Okay, yeah. I chose uh, a track uh, which was a massive hit in 1991, and it's on our playlist as well. Uh, It's called Desenchanté by the wonderful Mylène Farmer.
Uh, I, I, I love her and she's very special and it's interesting, uh, Vinny, that she's... I mean, I don't think people outside France know much about Milan Sarmé. I've got to say, until I saw her name on the list, I didn't know much about her at all. I've never heard of her. But they love her. She's massive. 21 number ones. What an incredible career. That sounds very like early 90s Kylie Minogue, that song that we just heard. Absolutely. But if I may say better, because okay. I think Milan Sarmé, she's she does play with art as well. Her, the clips, you know, she she's quite androgynous. She plays with history, uh, poetry, uh, gothic imagery as well. Uh, I love a little bit of Kylie, but Milen Farmer. Okay. Well done, Milen Well, Farmer. I did see your Spotify rap, and I know that she <laughs> Kylie was pretty high, Fernando. We're back here with the curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To food neighborhoods now. Borneo conjures images of wild jungle canopies and tropical fauna. But there is more to the world's third largest island than rainforests and orangutans. Monaco's Lilian Fawcett visits Kuching in Malaysian Borneo, which was named a creative city of gastronomy by UNESCO for its diverse culinary offering. The heart of Kuching is its historic waterfront where Malaysia's multiculturalism is proudly on display. Jutting out into the water is an ornate mosque with a blue-tiled dome roof and arched windows. Trees with expansive canopies and benches line the waterway and people watch wooden longboats cruise along the Sarawak River. They chug towards low-lying kampongs or traditional Malay villages. Across the water, Sarawak's past and present sit side by side, its huge modern parliament building with a pointed golden roof alongside a colonial-era fort, which now looks diminutive in comparison. Nearby, the elaborate Harmony Arch welcomes visitors to Chinatown. Kuching's architecture is defined by shophouse-style terraced buildings with wooden shutters, their colourful facades faded by the beating sun. The warm locals only add to the irresistible charm of Kuching. Now the capital of Sarawak State in Malaysian Borneo, Kuching was founded in the 19th century by James Brooke, the patriarch of the British family who ruled the region for more than a century. Until recently, the city was mostly a stopping-off point for tourists on their way to spot orangutans in the Borneo jungle. But with its flourishing food scene, laid-back feel and distinctive local character that brings together Chinese, Malay and indigenous Sarawak influences, Kuching is becoming an attraction in its own right. Along the Sarawak River, food vendors offer traditional Malaysian fare, nasi goreng and roti chanai, to be eaten al fresco at lunch. For dessert, the local favourite is ice cream with gula apong, a type of palm sugar grown on the Sarawak coast. For a more luxury offering, there is Commons, a restaurant cafe inside Kuching's old colonial courthouse. Its decor brings together contemporary style with historical charm, making it the perfect spot for an afternoon pick-me-up. The cake selection features British classics with a Malaysian twist. In Chinatown, affordable family-run restaurants are plentiful. Yixiang Dumpling House offers delicious fragrant laksa and dumplings. We went for egg and chive and seaweed and tofu. It was impossible to pick just one. Other cheap eats include Kong Pia, a kind of Asian bagel, from Songkeng High Market. 
Their chewy insides are filled with hot pork or garlicky butter. Perfect with a sticky, nutty salad called rojak, which means eclectic mix in colloquial Malay. The afternoon is best spent browsing in Kuching's many shops which sell traditional local wares like hand-weaved fabrics or bags. Make sure to pick up some Sarawak peppercorns, which are still grown in small plots on family-run farms, or some Borneo jungle honey. Kuching plays host to many cultural events throughout the year too, like the Sarawak Brigata, which draws teams from across Southeast Asia and as far away as Europe. It was founded in the 19th century to foster cohesion between warring tribes. As the sun dips below the horizon, stroll across Kuching's only pedestrian bridge, Darul Hanna, which offers the best view of a stunning tropical sunset over Borneo's mountains. Options for dinner in Kuching are plentiful. Fresh vegetables and seafood are on bright display at Top Spot. It's a vast open-air food market on top of a multi-storey car park. Even on a weeknight, the place is packed, but grab a table wherever you can find one, even if it means sharing. For a uniquely Borneo experience, try one of a number of Kuching restaurants offering traditional ethnic Sarawak cuisine. Innovative eatery Le Pau has won awards for its dishes, inspired by the Orang Ulu and Dayak tribes and all made from fresh local produce. Think zingy fish cured ceviche style, purple rice cooked in itun sip leaves, and punchy salads with ginger and putchuk paku, a kind of native fern. Stomachs full and mouths tingling make your way to one of Kuching's many lively bars, populated by tourists and locals alike. Monkey Bar has a wide selection of beers and donates half of its profits to wildlife conservation in Borneo. For live music, head to 21 Bistro and order a cocktail made with fresh fruits and tuak, Sarawak rice wine. If you're feeling hardy, sip it neat. Or make like a true local and enjoy a glass of Guinness. The Irish beer is so popular in Malaysia, its makers set up a brewery there in 1965. Last year, Guinness opened a flagship store and bar in the capital, Kuala Lumpur. Kuching is undeniably charming, cool but not trying too hard at it. Its unique combination of cultural influences is worn with pride, and every delicious plate of food or ice-cold drink served with a smile. And we stay in the world of food. To speak now with a culinary legend and actress, Madur Jaffrey, she sits down with Robert Bound to discuss her cookbooks, which span the flavors of India, and how she unintentionally became a household name for anyone with a taste for South Asian cuisine. I have food memories from the moment I was born. And I don't remember this, but I was told the story so many times that I feel <laughs> I remember it. That when I was born, I think it's the custom in our house for the oldest person, a woman, usually a grandmother, in case it was my grandmother, who comes into the room because you're born at home. And we lived in this lovely big house overlooking the river, the Yamuna River in Delhi. And our room faced the river uh, where I was and where I was born. And my grandmother came in. And she dipped her finger, her little finger, in a jar of honey. 
and then wrote the word Om in Sanskrit on my tongue. And apparently I licked my lips and opened my mouth for more. And that's the story that was told. So eventually when I was to be named, and there were all kinds of names that the priest suggested, and my father said, no, she's going to be called Madhur. Madhu is honey. And Madhur means sweet as honey. So I was named after what I had to eat for the very first time. <laughs> I love that. Other interview shows, Madhur, would, would say, and the rest is history at this point. We'll resist that temptation, possibly. Yes, yes. Let's Please. do it. Um, <laughs> I wonder, as we're kind of in and around your home in New York City, at least in a radio kind of way, um, at the beginning of this interview, Madhar, whether you can invite us into your kitchen briefly and let us know, just I'm sure people would love to know what your most used utensils have been over the years and maybe a couple of spices that are the things that you cannot do without that are always on call in your kitchen. Well, certainly certain pots and pans and my cast iron frying pan is a must. I use that a lot for a lot of things. Then to make my Indian breads and griddles uh, and pancakes and things like that, I have bought what is, you know, you know what a tava is? A tava is a griddle on which you make your breads and it's usually cast iron. Well, now... India has changing too, and it has its modern versions of everything. So I now have a, a non-stick griddle, which can make pancakes and they will never stick. They're so easy to do. So I love Indian pancakes. I absolutely adore them. I like pancakes made out of beans of various sorts, beans that I soak overnight and then make into a batter. And then I make my pancakes and eat them with lovely Indian cauliflower and potatoes. Oh, I'm getting so hungry just talking. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> so I, I, that is one of the things I use rather a lot. I like my nonstick pans. Now, these are newer things in the sense that I didn't start out. Nobody started out with nonstick pans, but I like good quality nonstick pans. I like good quality spatulas and all kinds of things for taking things out of either watery sources or oil, all kinds of spoons, slotted spoons and different kinds of spoons that remove food from where they are being cooked, often leaving the sauce behind or taking the sauce with it. So I use a lot of those and I have gadgets that I love. I like my gadget that slices into thin slices by the potatoes or it could be courgette or anything like that. When I'm wanting to slice things, I like my little slicer. It's like a mandolin, but now you have modern Japanese versions of it that work much quicker and faster. <laughs> so I love that, <laughs> that as well. <laughs> then I have, you know, like this season, my tomatoes just went wild and I had so many wonderful tomatoes. So I was constantly making a sauce out of the tomatoes. But then to get the, the last bits out of the sauce, first you cook tomatoes for a long time till they you know, get thick. And then you put them through a, a press. So I have this moody press, it's a French press, mm -hmm. that you push the liquid out of. And I love that. And that tomato sauce for me, 
These days I have a lot of yellow tomatoes, which are like eating a mango, actually. Mango-like, especially when they're concentrated, they become even more mango-like. So I'm making, using that sauce a lot for cooking dishes, various dishes. Even if I'm cooking potatoes, I will put a little bit of that in it. So it will have that lovely sweet, sour mango flavor, which I love. And finally, on today's show, our On This Day historical series reflects on the election of one of the most and least praiseworthy people ever to enter the UK's parliament. Any listener who has attended a reasonable number of British pub quizzes will have seen at least one descend into near riot over the following innocuous-seeming question. Who was the first woman elected to the United Kingdom's House of Commons? This is one of those facts that a lot of people, very much including bumptious, complacent pub quiz masters, think everybody knows. The answer, of course, is Nancy Astor. If, pro tip here, this is what the bumptious, complacent pub quiz master says, your next move should be to hide under a table. What is very likely to happen now is that some peevish pedant, and listener, the narrator of this monologue has been that peevish pedant, is going to get up on their hind legs and prefacing their remarks with either or both, well, actually, or I think you'll find, insist that this is incorrect. And though I was, I mean, though they are right, pointing out the quizmaster's error in a British pub is liable to provoke what traditional British understatement would characterise as a spirited discussion. Because here's the thing. Nancy Astor was the first woman to sit in the House of Commons, winning a by-election in the constituency of Plymouth Sutton on November 28, 1919. But the first woman elected to the House of Commons was Constance Markovich by the voters of Dublin St. Patrick's in the general election of December 28, 1918. But Constance Markovich never sat in the Commons. There were two reasons for this. One was that as a member of Irish Republican Party Sinn Féin, she did not recognise the British Parliament, nor would she swear an oath to the British Sovereign. The other reason was that she was, at the time, in Holloway Prison in London, jailed for campaigning against conscription for the Great War. It was not Markovich's first stretch in the slammer. She had been convicted for her part in the Easter Rising of 1916 and spared the firing squad only because the British fretted about the optics of executing a woman. She reputedly told her captors that she wished they'd had the decency to shoot her. Though Markovich and Astor had little in common, they were both foreigners. At least Markovich saw herself very much as such, despite having been born in London to Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Nancy Astor was from Virginia, daughter of Chiswell Dabney Langhorne, railroad baron and bearer of a name that F. Scott Fitzgerald would have scratched from a first draft for being somewhat overcooked. In 1906, she had moved to Britain and married her second husband, fellow American Waldorf Astor, newspaper proprietor and scion of the fabulously wealthy Astor family. 
He had become an MP in 1910, but had been compelled to relinquish the seat upon inheriting his father's place in the House of Lords. Nancy Astor, now the Viscountess Astor, contested the seat her husband had vacated, won it, and held it until 1945. But... Nancy Astor was awful. She hated Jews and didn't much care for Catholics, unless they were Catholics who hated Jews as much as she did, like her great friend, the ghastly Joe Kennedy Sr., U.S. ambassador to the U.K., father of eventual U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Astor was prominent among that cast of upper-class Britons and or American parvenus who harboured a barely suppressed enthusiasm for Adolf Hitler. She also acquired a formidable reputation for personal unpleasantness, which may be the reason that she appears as the foil in so many almost certainly apocryphal stories of exchanges involving Winston Churchill, most famously... If you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. If I was your husband, I'd drink it. A monument to Nancy Astor was erected in Plymouth in 2019 on the centenary of her election. Even as the cloth was removed from the statue, a veil was drawn over much of its subject by the UK's second female Prime Minister. I'm honoured to be here today to unveil this magnificent statue to a brave and trailblazing woman. It's one way of putting it, akin to those fabulous passive-aggressive British newspaper obituaries which make great use of euphemisms like didn't suffer fools gladly. Theresa May went on to say that Nancy Astor's election 104 years ago today changed British democracy for the better, and it did. It should also have been reminding us at least that long that venerated historical figures contain multitudes, not always in a good way. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>